And this is the word in a nutshell. The life of the spiritually mature believer is a dialectic of resting and reaching. The life of the spiritually mature believer is a dialectic of resting and reaching. Immature believers do one or the other. They either reach or they rest. Apathetic believers rest without reaching. Legalistic believers reach without resting. You can tell when you're in one camp or the other because you judge the people in the other camp. Reachers love to judge resters. And resters love to judge reachers. But spiritually mature believers have learned to reach restfully and to rest reachfully. Reaching and resting. And oftentimes in your life as a believer, you'll swing from one side of the pendulum to the other. I find myself resting and I go, but I'm not reaching anymore. I've become dry and apathetic and I, I've stopped actually going after the things of God and I've stopped pressing for something deeper. So then I go over to this reaching side and I start reaching and I start pressing and I start praying and I start fasting and then I find myself striving. And I'm striving in the flesh and it's profiting nothing. You know, we talk about spiritual disciplines. Do you know that the spiritual disciplines are only spiritual if you do them in the spirit? You know you can pray in the flesh and it profits nothing. You can fast in the flesh and it profits nothing. You can study the Bible in the flesh and it profits nothing. You can serve in the flesh. You can submit in the flesh and it profits nothing. They're only spiritual disciplines if you do them in the Spirit. And so I say, I'm striving, so I better get over here to this rest side. And then all of a sudden, I wake up three months later and say, you know what? I haven't prayed in about three months. I mean, I haven't, you know, I, I've done this kind of wishy-washy thing. I'm in my car going, Lord, would you ride in the car with me? It's, it's that spirituality on the way, <laughs> right? It's that living spirituality. I'm practicing the presence of God. The only problem is there ain't no presence of God. But I'm resting. But you're resting so deeply you're asleep. You say, no, 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 I've got to wake up and come over here and start pressing again. And I find that I can only do one or the other when I'm in my immature stage. But as I mature, I learn to reach in my rest. And I learn to rest in my reach. All right, that's my sermon in a nutshell. Bow, bow your heads, let's pray. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I want to draw this out for you, but that is my sermon in a nutshell, but I want to draw it out for you a little bit more. We see both sides of this in first, or Second Peter chapter 1, and uh, many of you will understand that this is one of my life passages of Scripture. I give it to you probably more than any other passage of Scripture. By the way, can I say that, that um, we need to be more scripturally literate as believers in Jesus Christ, we've got to get more Bible in us. Can I say that? It's very important. Second um, Peter chapter 1, I want you all to just meditate on this passage of Scripture until you get it in you, until you soak it up. 
until it lives in you. And I'm not talking about rote memorization. Rote memorization can be the flesh. I memorized a whole book of the Bible one time, and it didn't do anything for my spirit because it just stayed up in my mind. It just became an exercise of the flesh. This passage, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. The first thing Peter's going to talk about in this passage is the resting side. Now, when he's talking about the resting side, he's talking about what God did for you, and you're passive in it. God did it for you when you had nothing to do with it. You had no idea what he was doing. You didn't contribute to it. You didn't pray for it. You know there's stuff that God has done for you before you ever thought to pray for it, before you ever thought to ask for it, before you need to long for it, before you were awakened to the fact that you needed it. God just did it for you. You were asleep in the process, kind of like when he put Adam to sleep and took out his rib and made Eve. He woke up and said, dang, Gina. God, you did that, but I didn't even pray for that. No, I did that for you. How about when he put Abraham into a deep sleep and passed through the pieces and made covenant with him? There's the side that God does on your behalf while you're still sleeping. While you're yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly, the Bible says, right? Now, Peter's going to talk about that first in verses 3 and 4. He says, his divine power has given us everything we need For life and godliness. That is, when you wake up in the morning before you've said a prayer, before you've opened your Bible, before you've hungered for God or longed for Him, before you fasted or prayed, shared the gospel with someone on the street, said your prayers over your food, before you've done anything, you wake up every morning with everything you need for life and godliness. It's done. He did it. His divine power did it. Without your participation and without your permission. His divine power has given you everything you need for life and godliness. How? Through our knowledge of Him who calls us by His own glory and goodness. Simply because you know Him, you've got everything you need for life and godliness. Through our knowledge of Him. It doesn't say through our seeking of Him. It doesn't say through our praying to Him. It doesn't say through our fasting for Him. It doesn't say through our scripture, our, our studying scripture about Him. It doesn't say, it has nothing to do with the process that you or I implement. It has everything to do with what he does on our behalf without our participation. It's just transferred to your account the moment you come to the knowledge of him. Through our knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and goodness. He didn't call you by your glory or by your goodness. Because if, if, if it would have depended on your glory and goodness, he wouldn't have called you. Paul said it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 31. He said... Uh, Remember what you were before you were called. Not many of you were noble. Not many of you were wise according to the flesh. Not many of you were handsome or attractive. Remember what you were when you were called. No, God chose the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. And he's talking about you and me. He said what God did was he went and got a bunch of daft, stupid people. That includes me. says, I'm going to take these morons and I'm going to so fill them with my spirit that they're going to confound the wise. Paul said, you forgot where you were when God called you. You forgot what you were doing before he found you. You forgot the pit. You got sanctified and pulled out of that pit, and you think you're somebody. 
You forgot who you were. Remember what you were when he called you. Remember where you were. He called you by his own glory and goodness. And then he says, through these, he's given us this very great and precious promises. So that by them, we might participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption that's in the world through evil desires. Watch this. First of all, his promises empower us to participate in the divine nature. Meaning, we are adopted sons of God because we were not sons of God before we came to faith in Jesus Christ. By the way, there's a theology out there that says we're all God's children. Everyone in the world is God's children. There's only one way to become God's child, and that's through faith in Jesus Christ. It says, as many as believed him, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become sons of God. Don't get it twisted. But when you become a son of God, you know, my my family, we adopted a little girl when she was three years old. My parents adopted a little girl when she was three years old. And she is my little sister. She is 17 years younger than me. She just turned 18 years old. Her name is Melody. And uh, it's, a, it's a great name for her because she loves to sing. Uh, but you could tell she's not born in our family because she can't sing. Uh, <laughs> but uh, we don't have the heart to tell her, so we just let her sing away. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Um, but, but here's the thing. We could give her our name, but we couldn't give her our nature. We gave her our name. Her name is Melody Robinson. She's got the same name I do. She's got the same inheritance I do. When, when, if my parents were to pass away, the inheritance would be broken up four ways. She's no different from me and my brothers in that sense. She's got the same right to my parents as I do. All of that stuff she could share in the external inheritance and in the name. But we could not give her our nature. We could not take the Robinson genes and put it in her and all of a sudden she could sing. All of a sudden she could play the piano. We could not give her our nature. But when God adopts, he doesn't just give his name, he gives his nature. And he gives his nature through his promises. That is, the promises of God empower you to partake of the divine nature. That is, the moment God makes a promise, the moment you open up the pages of Scripture and receive a promise from God, embedded in that promise is the very DNA of God. And when that promise goes into your heart, it begins to release, there's some gene therapy of the Spirit. And God's very nature becomes your nature, and you're not working for it. You're not working for it. It begins to work in you as if you were a natural-born son. Now, I am a natural-born son of Peter and Diane Robinson. That means that whatever is natural to them, it's natural to me. Singing is natural to both Diane and Peter Robinson. Music is natural to the Robinson line and the Means line, my, my mother's line. On both sides of the family, you can find folks who never had a piano lesson before in their life, but they could sit down and make it talk. 
And you know what? I never took piano lessons either. I can play it. You know why? Because it's in my genes. It's in my nature. It's in my being. It's natural to me. I participate in the nature of my mom and dad. And matter of fact, as I was growing up, I saw my, mom, my dad sit down at the piano and play. I just assumed I could. So I'd sit down and bang, and I didn't notice, it didn't dawn on me that it sounded bad. I just thought I was sounding good. <laughs> and you know what? After a while, the banging did start sounding good. Why? Because it's in my nature. There was no doubt that it's going to happen. My mother, at 50 years old, decided she wanted to play the piano. And guess what? She's playing and leading worship at church after like one year. Just sat down at the piano and started, you know, fooling around. And Benjamin, show me a couple things. I showed her a couple things. She took off. It's in her genes. It's in her. My brother Josh. Never played the piano before in his life. But the keyboard player left his church. He said, I'll play. They said, how are you going to play? You don't know how to play. He said, I'll figure it out. He just went to the keyboard. A few weeks later, he's leading worship from the keyboard. It's in our genes. I have no doubt. I gave Alethea her first piano lesson yesterday. I have no doubt in my mind she's going to make it talk. I guarantee it. It's in our, it's in our nature. You know what? When God gives you his promises, when you come to the knowledge of who he is, when Jesus saves you and the spirit of adoption comes in and makes you God's child, you, it is as if you are a natural-born child that is the whole DNA of who God is is on the inside of you, and you start to develop it. It just happens naturally. You naturally, what is natural for God? You know, we talk about the difference between the natural and the supernatural. At the end of the day, there is no distinction. Because even the natural comes from the supernatural. When God created the heavens and the earth, the heavens and the earth took place, came into being as a supernatural work. So even the heavens and the earth, even their very being is supernatural in, na in nature. And actually there's no such thing as the supernatural because that which we call supernatural is natural to God. It just happens natural. It, it, people just get healed when they're in his presence. It's just natural to him. That's natural for folks to get healed when they're in the presence of God. It's natural for folks to get saved when the presence of God. It's natural for freedom to happen in the presence of God. You know what? When you begin to live in the presence of God and understand your nature, you understand that those things just naturally happen around you because I participate in his nature. The problem is we take those things and we put them over on the reaching side. So that we're reaching for that which God has given us in our rest. You're still resting. In your rest, before you've prayed, He's given you everything necessary for life and godliness. You've got everything. If you wake up in the morning feeling like you're missing something, it's a lie. I said on, 30, on, on Thursday night that the enemy is under your feet. If you think he's over your head, it's because you're upside down in your thinking. That is good. I went home and gave myself an offering for that one. But then Peter talks about the reaching side. He says, for this very reason, verse 5, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, for this very reason, because of all that God gave you in your rest, for this very reason, make every effort. Look at your neighbor and say, make every effort. That's the NIV. The NKJV says, giving all diligence. Make every effort. To add 
to your faith. See, everything in verses 3 and 4 takes place because of your faith. But verses 5 and following take some effort. Make every effort to add to your lonely faith. Your faith needs a brother. Because only children tend to get spoiled. Make every effort to add to your faith. That is, your faith needs something more. This is the side that most believers miss. Either we take everything over here and we put it on the effort side, and so that it's all about, it's all about my effort. Or we take everything over here and put it on the rest side so that it's just, I just wake up in the morning and it's all there. But I wonder why I'm living a dry, arid, powerless Christian life. I wonder why I'm striving and striving and nothing is getting any better. It's because I haven't learned how to rest in the things that I already possess. And I haven't learned how to make every effort for the things that God is setting before me, saying this comes only through your reaching. Now, the relationship between the two, we're going to get in what those are in a moment, but the relationship between the two is very, very important. Faith and works are not twins, and they are not equal partners. Some people say that salvation is by faith, but everything else flows out of works, and that is not true. In fact, at the end of the day, you cannot separate your faith from your works because as John Wesley said, faith alone saves, but a faith that saves is never alone. Did you hear that? Faith alone saves, but a faith that saves is never alone. That is, if you have true faith, something in you is going to say, now I'm going to make every effort because of this faith. Or we could call it the works of grace. Grace saved me. But my works are not works in isolation from that grace. They are the works that flow out of grace. They are the works of grace. So that Paul said, I am the least of all the apostles and not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church, but by the grace of God I am what I am. Literally, he says, it was grace that saved me. I should have died and went to hell. I was trying to kill Christians. I was trying to stop the church of Jesus Christ. But by the grace of God I am what I am. By God's grace I'm saved. But then he took it a step further and said, but his grace to me was not in vain. No, I labored more than them all. Until God's grace causes you to begin to labor, God's grace is still in vain in your life. He says, no, I labored more than them all. But, then he adds this quickly, yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. You hear what he's saying? Even, even my labor is a work of grace. It was grace that saved me. It was grace that made me an apostle. And it was grace that causes me to work. Matter of fact, everything I do in labor, it's grace working through me. It's, and that's why I don't judge people who aren't there yet. Because I know it's the work of grace in me and not the work of the flesh. So, Peter says, make every effort to add to your faith what? The word is virtue. That's what it says in the NKJV. In the NIV it says goodness. The word in the Greek is arete. It literally means excellence. Now the thing you need to understand is that, you know the word good in our culture is, is, is I. When you say, you know, when you say something's good, it's I, that's I. 
How was that movie? Oh, it was good. It's good. It's good. It's good. It's like, well, I'll wait till it comes out on video then. <laughs> How's that restaurant? Oh, it's good. It's good. Okay. I, I, I'll go somewhere else then. <laughs> you know, I, I don't want to spend my money <laughs> unless you're buying. <laughs> you know. No, I want something great. Now, somebody says it's great. It's excellent. It's paramount. It's it's awesome. It's indeed. It's it's wonderful. It's 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 grandorious to use a phrase of Joseph Sevier. <laughs> grandorious. <laughs> the thing you need to understand is that in Scripture the word good is a superlative. You know what a superlative is. A superlative is the is the maxim of any genus. The highest level. A superlative, when you use a superlative, you're using a term that constitutes the highest echelon of any continuum, the highest level of any continuum. In other words, if you're talking about uh, good food, what's the highest word you could, if you, if you had some food that was just slamming, it was screaming, it was off the hinges, it was off the chain. You know, when somebody says, how are those, how, how's that cornbread? Man, this cornbread is off the chain. No, this cornbread is screaming. This, this cornbread makes me want to slap your mama. You don't just say it's good. You look for the terminology that takes you to the highest level of goodness. That is, when, whenever you hear somebody use a superlative, you think in your mind it doesn't get any better than that. In the Bible, the word good is a superlative. The highest thing the Scripture can say about you is that you're good. Matter of fact, when someone came to Jesus and said, we know you're a good teacher, he said, why do you call me good? There's no one good but God alone. Meaning that if you call me good, you better call me God. Do you know what you're saying when you call me good? And matter of fact, it said just two verses earlier that he called us through his own glory and goodness. Not greatness, not excellence, not off-the-chainness. Goodness. In Israel, they cried out at the dedication of Solomon's temple, The Lord is good, and His mercy endures forever. That's the best thing they could have said about Him, that He's good. If you are going to, if you are going to obtain the measure of goodness, you've got to make every effort to add it to your faith. And here's the thing, everything talked about in verses 3 and 4 is internal, but from verses 5 and following, it's external. His divine promises, his divine power gives you everything you need for life and godliness, it's all in you. Through his glory and goodness, it's in you. His promises are in you. Participating in the divine nature, it's in you. And I forgot to talk about escaping the corruption that's in the world through evil desires. You thought you only escaped the corruption that's in the world, you know, sinful desires and sinful actions. You thought you only escaped them through your action, through your effort. You thought that was on the effort side. I've got to try harder not to do this. I've got to try harder to get away from this. But it says, no, you escape it through the promises. Meaning you simply begin to believe. Can I say this? I see a lot of repenting in the body of Christ, but not a whole lot of believing. Believers fall into sin and, oh, Lord, I repent and I grovel and I cry and I lay at the altar and then I walk away like this. You don't believe you're free. That's why you don't have a chance of walking clean because you don't believe for it. But the Scripture says repent and then believe. And to believe means I stand up and lift my head and say, because I repented, he's faithful.
faithful and just to forgive me of my sin, to cleanse me of all unrighteousness, I'm free. I'm free. But no, you walk away going, well, we'll see. We'll see. I sure hope it worked. Now I've got to give it, give it my best shot. And I put it right back there on the effort side. Okay, back over here. Goodness. Now what is goodness? Goodness is when all of that God has put on the inside of me works its way out of me. In my works. In my actions. I've got to make every effort to express in my actions that which dwells in me through virtue of God's presence in my heart. That takes effort. There's a, a scene in, in um, the life of David when his son Absalom drove him out of Jerusalem and he had to run for his life. And uh, then there was the war between his army and Absalom's army. And Absalom had led the army out to war. And David was waiting in the city to hear news of the battle, whether his army had won or not, and especially his son Absalom. And... Uh, a watchman was standing on the wall, and he looked out, and he saw a man running, a messenger running. And he said, King, there's a messenger coming. He's running toward the city. And David said, Who is he? And he looked. He said, It looks like the running of Ahimahaz. And David said, He's a good man. He'll bring good news. Before he had opened his mouth, David said, He's a good man. His reputation entered the city before he did. When people see you running towards their city, what reputation enters the city before you do? Do they see your running and say, it looks like the running of Oscar Alvarenga. He's a good man. It's going to be good news. Whatever he says is going to be good. Why? Because his reputation entered the city before he did. When people see you running towards their city, what reputation enters the city before you? When they see you pull up in front of their house, do they go, oh, Lord. When they see you walking towards them after church, do they think, oh, hide me. Where can I hide? Help. Get me away. <laughs> Do they immediately strike up a conversation with somebody else? How you doing, brother? Good to see you. <laughs> How you doing, brother? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what's going on in your life? Tell me, tell me, tell me. Quick! Tell me quick! <laughs> or do they see you coming and go, I've got to talk to this person. He's a good man. He's going to bring the good news. Can I tell you? Listen, and David said, it'll be good news. He's a good man. The news will be good. He's a good man. He's going to bring good news. Do you know that if people cannot see the good news of your life, they will not receive the good news of the gospel from your mouth? Maybe the reason people don't hear the gospel from you is because your life is not good news. They look at your life and they see nothing but bad news, and then you want to tell them, i got to tell you the good news of Jesus. And they go, there's a credibility gap between the way you live your life and the message that you preach. Don't put a bumper sticker on your car that says, honk if you love Jesus, if you're going to give people the finger when they honk. You got a bumper sticker that says, Jesus is my co-pilot, but you drive about 40 miles over the speed limit. You better let him drive. <laughs> soon and very soon, you're going to be going to see the king. No more driving there. You're playing gospel music at your desk at work, but you show up 45 minutes late every day. Take an extra 30 minutes for lunch and leave 20 minutes early without getting your work done. 
And your only testimony is that people at your job don't curse around you. And that's only because you're legalistic and a hypocrite and a religious hypocrite. And people actually testify about that at church. Woo! Those people were swearing and cussing and listening to, to worldly music, but I came in the room, they turned off that music and got quiet. That doesn't say anything about your testimony for Christ. That just means they said, here comes that religious hypocrite. Better turn that off before they come in judging all of us. They're no closer to the kingdom than before you walked in. Matter of fact, they're further because they don't want to be a religious hypocrite like you. I'm not talking about y'all. I'm just talking. <laughs> There's a young preacher that asked me, he said, how come you can be so mean when you preach, but I can't? I said, because my sheep know my voice. They know I love them. They don't know you. A stranger they will not follow. <laughs> Add to your faith goodness. There's only two men in the Bible that are called good beside Jesus. First was Ahimahaz. Second was a man named Barnabas. Now in Acts chapter 11, first of all in Acts chapter 8, uh, this guy named Stephen. Now in the early church you had two kinds of, of believers. You had, they were all Jews, but some of them were Greek-speaking Jews, and others of them were Hebrew-speaking Jews. The Greek-speaking Jews were the pilgrims of the dispersion. In 365 B.C., Alexander the Great took over the world. And whenever Alexander the Great would take over your country, he'd come in and take 60% of the best and brightest and strongest and disperse them throughout their, his entire empire. So you had Jews that had been taken out of their land and dispersed throughout the, the Greek empire, and they were forced to learn Greek. And after 365 years later, most of them didn't speak Hebrew. The Bible had been, the Old Testament had been translated from Hebrew into Greek. It was called the Septuagint. And they worshipped in what are called synagogues. Synagogues were Greek-speaking places of Jewish worship. And they read from the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament, of the Hebrew Scriptures. Stephen goes into this synagogue called, this, called the Synagogue of the Freedmen, and he begins to preach Christ in Greek to these Grecian Jews. And they stone him to death. And after they stoned him to death, a great persecution broke out against all of the Greek-speaking Jews in Jerusalem, and they all ran for their lives. The apostles didn't run. Why? Because it wasn't against the Hebrew-speaking Jews. It was only against the Greek-speaking Jews. And they all scattered everywhere. Philip went down to Samaria and started a revival there. That's why Philip went to Samaria. He was running for his life from Jerusalem. And the Lord says, while you're running, stop and preach the gospel. Stop and preach the gospel. Everybody gets saved. He keeps running. <laughs> But there was a group of Greek-speaking Christian Jews who went to the city called Antioch, and instead of going to the synagogue and preaching to Jews only, they went out into the marketplace and started preaching to everybody. And a whole bunch of Gentiles started getting saved. Now, all of a sudden they have this big multi-ethnic church in this city called Antioch. And the apostles in Jerusalem heard about it. They said, we need to send somebody there to check it out to make sure everything is decent and in order there. Who are we going to send? They said, we chose Barnabas. Why? It said because he was a good man. And he was full of faith and he was full of the Holy Spirit. They knew that whatever Barnabas did there would be good. And so they said, we'll send him there. 
Do you carry that reputation that whatever you do, wherever you go, you can be sent because I just know it'll be good? If, if he said it, I know it's good. If she said it, I know it's good. Even if somebody comes back to and says, so-and-so said, no, 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 he's a good man. I know whatever he said will be good. Do you have that reputation? The apostle said, Barnabas, we fully entrust you with this. Go over there, set things in order, rebuke if you need to. If you rebuke, we know it's going to be good. Do you know one of the biggest problems in the church is we got folks rebuking other folks in the church, and <laughs> they need to be rebuked themselves? We got babies in the house trying to rebuke other babies in the house. You're out of order. Maybe you're out of order. Have you been authorized to tell somebody they're out of order? Well, keep it to yourself. (laughs) You're not in submission. Have you been authorized to tell anybody they're not in submission? Then keep it to yourself. I love you. I love all of you. You know that. I just love. I know I'm hard today, huh? That's okay. We're setting some stuff in order today. That's okay. Add to your faith goodness. When you develop a reputation for goodness, people can receive anything from your mouth. You know, my pastor, my spiritual father, uh, he he rebukes me, and he hates that I tell people that he rebukes me because he doesn't feel like he's rebuking me. But, you know, when he looks at me and says, man of God, you're completely wrong. Everything you just said is a lie from the devil. Now, is that not a rebuke? (laughs) But he says it with so much love. There's absolutely no way in the world that I could reject that. We had him in a meeting with another young man this week, and and, uh, he rebuked that young man. He he looked at him and he says, no, son, you're completely wrong. You're not going to do that. And he said, well, I'm struggling to believe for this. And he said, nobody asked you to believe. This has nothing to do with faith. You're just going to obey. He said, I don't care if you believe it or not. He said, well, I'm not comfortable. Nobody asked you to be comfortable. You're just going to obey. You're going to do this because your spiritual father said so. You know, he just broke him off. I mean, it wasn't nice. I was like, ooh, ooh. After it was over, we spoke to that young man. He said, were you hurt by that? He said, how can anybody be hurt by what he says? I mean, when he says it, it just comes with so much love. How can you not receive it when he says, you know, when you develop a reputation for goodness, people say that about you. When you're, How could I not receive it? He just loved me so much. How could I not receive it? She just loves me so much. How could I not receive it? They just, there was so much care and concern. There's so much goodness in their voice. How could I not receive it? You know what? If you want to get to that place of goodness, it's going to take some effort. Some effort to add to your faith. Now, I don't have time to get into all of this, but he says, add to your faith goodness, to goodness, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control. It's interesting that he puts self-control after knowledge. Because knowledge can be dangerous because it puffs up. You've got to control yourself. My wife, you know, I had this thing where I, 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 uh, the more knowledge I gained, the more I thought I was just everybody's teacher. And my wife used to rebuke me, you know, because all it would take was for somebody to say, I wonder why this. And I would go into a lecture about the ancient Mayans. (laughs) And she would say, you need to learn how to control yourself. Nobody asked for a lecture. These are not your students. These are your friends. (laughs) You know who's the most dangerous people in the world? Bible college students. 
They took one class in theology and they think they know more than their pastor now. I remember taking, I remember taking Greek in seminary and, and the Greek professor said on the first day, I'm about to make all of you the most dangerous people in the body of Christ. Because you're going to take one year of Greek and think you know more than your pastors and your leaders, more than the NIV, than the translators of the Bible. <laughs> so to knowledge, self-control, meaning it's good to learn, but control yourself. And to self-control brotherly kindness. Just because you know something and you're right does not give you the right to destroy your brother or sister over it. Actually, it's not about being right. It's about being right with each other. Hello? You know what righteousness is? Righteousness is right relationship with God and with others. I'm not right with God if I'm not right with you. And to brotherly kindness, love. Love takes effort. It takes some work. Matter of fact, you've got to be willing to wash each other's feet and die. That's what Jesus said. Greater love has no one than this. Then he laid down his life for his friends. And it says in John 13, he says, having loved those who were of his own from the beginning, he now showed them the full extent of his love. And what did he do? He got on his hands and knees and washed his feet. You know, if you look around and you see your brothers and sisters got dirty feet, instead of talking bad about those dirty feet, it's your responsibility and obligation to wash them. <laughs> I'm just going to let that one sink in right there. We think we're prophetic because we can tell what's wrong with everybody. If you turn that gift on yourself, you'd never use it again. <laughs> the Lord showed me she's got a spirit of this. The Lord showed me he got a spirit of this. The Lord showed me she's dealing with this. The Lord showed me she... And the only one the Lord ain't speaking to you about is you. And it says, if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, you will be neither barren nor unproductive in your knowledge. You see that? You will be neither barren nor unproductive in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus. Now, up above, it says, his divine power giving you everything necessary for life and godliness through your knowledge of him who's called you by his own glory and goodness. It's passive, but without the active side, the passive side is barren and unfruitful. You're barren and unfruitful in your knowledge because you haven't made every effort to add to your faith. If you possess these qualities in increasing measure, meaning they should always be increasing, meaning you should have more goodness today than you did last week. You should be increasing in goodness. It means you should have more knowledge today than you did last week. It means you should have more self-control this week than you did last week. It means you should have more brotherly kindness, more love, in increasing measure. The minute they stop increasing, you become barren and unproductive in your knowledge. And it's as if all of this passive side over here doesn't even exist. Because you're not making any effort. He who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness. And has forgotten all of this stuff over here that he's been cleansed of his former sins. You know the throne of God is given two names in the New Testament. First, in uh, Romans chapter 14, verse 10, 
And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, it's called the mercy, the, the judgment seat of Christ. Romans 14.10 and 2 Corinthians 5.10, both verses say we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And it says in, in one of those passages, therefore knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. There is a judgment seat of Christ, and it says when we appear before that judgment seat of Christ, he's going to reward all of us for our works, whether good or bad. Do you know there's a reward for bad works? God says, I'm going to reward you for this sin. That's why Paul says the wages of sin is death. This is your, this is your wages. You're owed this. My mama used to say, I owe you a whooping. I owe you one. Wait till we get home. I owe you a whooping. Meaning I would be cheating you if I did not give you this. You have it coming to you. You have worked hard to get it, and I will not cheat you of your reward. <laughs> I owe you. That was the most terrifying thing to ever hear out of my mom's mouth because she did not forget. <laughs> Heaven and earth would pass away, but her word would not pass away. <laughs> the judgment seat of Christ, it should terrify us that we have to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And don't think that because you're saved, you no longer have to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Paul is speaking as a believer to believers, and he says twice, we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ that we may receive our reward for works done in the body, whether good or bad. Meaning at the end of your life, he's going to stand you up. Oh, I thought you paid it all. I did, but you didn't honor that payment. So we got to talk about some stuff. Open the book. Bring the reward. What's that going to look like? I don't know. It don't tell us. What is the negative reward that believers will receive for negative works done in the body? I have no idea, but I don't want to find out. <laughs> Not hell. You're still going to heaven. You just may live in a shack when you get there. You see a brother driving around in a heavenly Bentley and another brother on one roller skate. <laughs> it's called the Bema. The Bema. The judgment seat of Christ. But in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, and chapter 4, verse 2, it's called the hilasterion, which means the mercy seat. The mercy seat. The author of Hebrews calls it the throne of grace. It's the mercy seat or the throne of grace. And he says we come boldly before the throne of grace to receive grace in time of need. Paul says we've got to appear before the judgment seat. The author of Hebrews says we've got to appear before the mercy seat or before the, the throne of grace. John said we have... He says in, uh, in uh, 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, he says, If anyone sins, 
we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the hilasterion. Literally, he is the mercy seat. The mercy seat was the lid on the Ark of the Covenant. The cherubim were there. The blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat. God was enthroned there. It's the place where he sat, not in judgment of his people, but in mercy to pass over their sins. He is the mercy seat. Jesus is the place, the seat of God's mercy where his mercy is poured out. We've got to appear before the judgment seat, but we also appear before the mercy seat. And when we are in our rest, we recognize that we're standing before the mercy seat. But when we start to make every effort, we understand that what we do takes us before the judgment seat. But mature believers have learned to take the judgment seat and the mercy seat and make it one seat. I'm resting in his mercy, but also working in acknowledgement of his judgment. And neither corrupts the other. But the, the other flows out of the first. Because even in his judgment, he remembers mercy. And then I'll end with this. In uh, Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, Jesus tells this parable. He says, the kingdom of God is like unto a man who found a treasure in a field. And when he found it, he hid it. And then in his joy, he went and sold all he had and came back and bought that field. The resting side. He's just walking in a field. He wasn't seeking treasure. He wasn't crying out for it. He just stumbled upon this pearl of great price. Just resting. He found it. He stumbled upon it. But now the effort side comes because now he's got to sell all he has in order to buy that field if he's going to get that pearl. Now watch this. Can you imagine, Kent, that you were that man? You've got to go sell all you have. Can you imagine trying to convince your wife that we got to sell everything? You run in the house and we're selling everything. Where's the deed to the house? I'm selling the house. Well, calm down. What are you doing, boy? I'm selling the house. Why are you selling the house? We got to buy this field. We got to get out all your clothes, all your jewels, everything. Kids, give me that Nintendo. Give me that, that Wii. Give me that PlayStation. I'm selling it. What, Dad? No, no. We got to sell everything. Can you imagine how many conversations with people who think you were crazy you have to have? How many potentially broken relationships because you're trying to sell everything and you're trying to convince people who have never seen the pearl that you've got to sell everything for the pearl? Your wife's going to say, boy, this is a scam. We're going to get over there in that field and that pearl's going to be a fake. But you've seen it yourself, and so you know it's real. You're trying to convince people around you of the reality of the pearl. It's going to take some effort. And so you're selling the house and selling the car, selling all your clothes, selling all your possessions. You're selling the piano. Your kids are crying because you're selling their stuff too. Young man, what's your name? Aaron, what is your most treasured possession? Your iPod. Your daddy takes that, snatches it out of your hand. Aaron is crying, and Ken is just putting it on eBay. <laughs> Every day, folks are showing up at the house picking up stuff. Kent's mailing stuff out in the mail. Lillian wakes up the next morning. All of her jewelry has gone. All of it is gone. Her hair dryer, hair is all over the place. Where's my hair dryer? I sold it. 
Where are my combs? Sold them too. Where's my clothes? Sold all of them. Getting out of the shower, there's no towels. I sold all the towels. How are we even going to get to the field? You sold our cars. The moment the last item is sold, Kent and the whole family are standing on the corner in their drawers. And everybody's mad at Kent. They walk to the field, and it probably takes them a few hours to get to the field. But he's got this big bundle of cash, and he buys the field. He goes and digs up that pearl says, look at this, splat out. <laughs> Bam! I can buy you ten houses. I can buy you five iPods with more memory. Matter of fact, I'll buy you an iPhone. How's that? I'll buy you two iPhones and an iPad, too. Mm -hmm. Lillian, all the jewelry you, you lost, I'm buying you ten times that much jewelry. I'm going to take you to the beauty salon every day to get your hair done. And you don't have to work no more. Mm -hmm. And matter of fact, the whole family's going on a shopping spree. And I'm, talk, I'm not talking about just like a, a Ross Dress for Less shopping spree. I'm talking about a Sarah Palin and family shopping spree. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> 150 G's. You know what? At the end of the day, nothing you did was a sacrifice. It wasn't a sacrifice selling that stuff. If I tell you... Give me $5,000, and I'll give you $5 million. Give me that $5,000 is not a sacrifice. That is, if in your effort you're obtaining infinitely more than you're sacrificing, then your sacrifice is not really a sacrifice. You know, we talk a lot about sacrifice. Do you realize we don't sacrifice anything? You know, the only one in history who ever really lost anything for the sake of the gospel was Jesus. I mean, he was omnipotent. He actually gave up stuff for us. We don't give up anything. I mean, everything we give up, what we receive, it doesn't say you buy the pearl. It says you buy the field. And you get the pearl for free. It just comes with the field. In all of your efforts, you're not buying the pearl. You're not working to obtain the pearl. You're just working to obtain the field. The field may be prayer and service and fasting and submission and obedience and, and evangelism and outreach and missions. All of these things, it may be the field that will cost you money to buy that field. But the pearl in the field comes for free. Here's the thing. There's a lot of believers that feel so beat down on this effort side. Disillusioned, disgruntled, used. Abused? Why? Because I feel like I've labored and labored and labored over here on this effort side and obtained nothing. And the only reason I feel that is because I haven't seen the pearl yet. Imagine, even after buying the field, your wife still never sees the pearl. She still feels like we just lost everything and obtained nothing. 
You know when I start working? And you know when the man in this, in this parable started working? When he started laboring? When he started selling stuff? It was once he saw the pearl. That's when I start working, when I see the pearl. In his joy, he went and sold all he had. Sacrifice comes out of joy when you see the, when you see the pearl of great price. If it's a burden, you just haven't seen the pearl yet. But once you see the pearl, it's a joy. You can't wait to get on this effort side because you see what has been purchased for you on the passive side. And so in his joy, it was the joy that made his reaching an act of rest. Did you hear that? It was his joy that made his reaching an act of rest. Otherwise, he's just striving and laboring and striving. You just feel like you're pushing the mill. You're just put, grinding the millstones. You're just pushing. You're working away. You're slaving, and nothing is coming out of it for you. But once you see the pearl, say, this is worth losing everything for. Because I'm going to get the pearl. In his joy, he went and sold all he had bought that field. I want you to know that there's a pearl of great price. That there is great reward in the service of the Lord. Some of us here, you feel like you've pressed and pressed and pressed and have obtained nothing. That all of your labor, either in the house of the Lord or in the prayer closet, some of you are tired of praying because you've prayed and prayed and prayed and nothing happened. Some of you are tired of studying Scripture because you feel like you still don't understand it. You're not getting anywhere. You feel like you're just on a treadmill. You're running hard but not making any progress. Some of you are burnt out and you're reaching. So you just went to the resting side and just said, I'm tired. Collapse. Some of you have been on the resting side for so long you've become apathetic and asleep because you've forgotten about the pearl. Wherever you are today, there's an infusion of supernatural grace coming to you. If you're resting so deeply that you've fallen asleep, there's an infusion of supernatural grace that's coming to wake you up. If you've been striving over here in the flesh and you're tired and you're worn out, Jesus says, come to me. You are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. But there's no such thing as a rest that removes your reach or a reach that removes your rest. The healing power of God comes to bring the two together so that you learn how to reach and rest and rest and reach. Let's pray.